Welcome to a very special episode of How Hard Can It Be? Up close and personal with the real people behind the hits and misses in Boston's venture capital big time. My name is Bob Howard, and I'm the co-founder of G20 Ventures. You can follow me on Twitter at BobTheVC and link to our Medium publication at g20vc.com. Each week, we'll be getting to know one of the luminaries in our startup community and drill into a specific area of their expertise for the benefit of other entrepreneurs and investors. My guest is the usual host of this po- podcast, my new partner, Mike Triano. Mike is a new venture capitalist who brings nearly 25 years of executive leadership and marketing experience to bear for entrepreneurs. He most recently served as the chief marketing officer at Actifio, a global enterprise data as a service provider he helped turn it from an obscure virtualization technology into a venture capital unicorn. As CMO from 2012 to 2017, Mike helped grow revenue over 80% per year creating the copy data virtualization category while expanding the business into blue chip accounts across 37 countries. He spent his early career at top worldwide ad agencies, including McCain, Erickson, and FCB. I think that's Foot Cone Belding and was named the founding CEO of Ogilvy and Mather Interactive in 1995. He later served as the president of NASDAQ listed systems integrator Primex and as general manager of mobile content pioneer MCube from inception through one of the largest Boston-based venture capital exits of 2006. In this week's second segment, we're going to talk about what folks can expect from G20 going forward and what we're going to be focused on as a firm. How Hard Can It Be is sponsored by G20 Ventures, early traction capital for East Coast enterprise tech startups, backed by the power and expertise of 20 of the Northeast's most accomplished entrepreneurs. G20 Ventures, people first. How Hard Can It Be is also sponsored by Actifio, the world's leading enterprise data as a service platform. Deliver your data just like your applications and infrastructure as a service available instantly anywhere for hybrid cloud, faster DevOps, and better business resiliency. Actifio is radically simple. Here now, my conversation with my new partner, Mike Traiano. All right, so I'm going to follow roughly the same format that I hear you follow because I, I like the way you do it. All right, um, that's fine. So let's go back to the beginning. Uh, and I know the beginning's in Rhode Island. So tell me a little bit about, and I'm from New Jersey, so I, we can identify on something. Sure. Tell sure. me a little bit about what it's like to grow up uh, in Rhode Island in your house. Uh, well, um, you know, my house was an Italian house, so there was some yelling and a lot of love. <laughs> um, I have a younger sister. We grew up in Johnston, which... I think at the time had the highest per capita concentration of Italian-American ethnicity of any municipality in America. Wow. Little known, uh, also the highest concentration of IROC Z28 ownership. Okay, I wasn't going to go there, but yeah. 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 So. um, Okay, so younger sister. Younger sister, yeah. And any other siblings? No, that's it. That's Uh, that's the only one. any other family nearby? I mean, I, I guess yeah, imagine like a big yeah, table. Yeah, no, of, it's uh, exactly you know my. So we lived in Johnston. My mother actually grew up in Cranston. Yep. And my had three sisters, and they all lived kind of within you know five miles of each other. Okay. Uh, around so. my grandmother's house, uh, my dad grew up on Federal Hill uh, in Providence, um, and uh, his parents uh, lived there. Uh, he had a sister as well. But uh, yeah, very you know close knit uh, family, like a classic uh, yeah. you know Italian family. And so, what did your dad do, like, uh, or your mom? What yeah, my, well, my mom was was a, a you know homemaker and uh, raised us till we got a little bit older. When we were both in school, she uh, went back to what she had done as a young person, which was a, a hairdresser, um, and uh, she had her own uh, shop called Ria's, which was her nickname. Um, her real name is Maria, and everybody called her Ria, and so. Oh. Um, and, uh, that explains my, the nice grooming. <laughs> yes, I'm nothing if not meticulously <laughs> groomed. Um, but it's funny because you know we all did our part. Like my job was cleaning the brushes and folding the towels, um, and so I folded a lot of towels. Um, and uh, my dad was a sales guy, a computer sales guy, at Digital and then at Data General and. Um, um, at a bunch of other places, um, you know, Apollo computer, like the whole 128 kind of workstation thing. He was a sales guy at all of those companies. Oh, so that was your first introduction to technology, I guess. Really? Yeah. I, I mean, he was not a technical person, still is not really a technical, I don't think of him as technical. Uh-huh. Um, but uh, yeah, he, he 
my, the sensibility I have about how technology creates value in a business and how to sell technology is definitely shaped by, uh, by my dad. Um, so tell me a little bit about your high school days. Like, I just want to know what kind of kid you were. Were you like a jock? Were you, uh, uh, you know, in the, I don't know, AV yeah. group? Uh, <laughs> I imagine you being, you know, involved in the yearbook somehow. What yeah, I, I, I would say that I, I struggled to fit in a little bit. I, I didn't really find, you know, my tribe. Uh-huh. Um, because I was, uh, you know, I was, a, I was one of the smart kids. Um, and I was in the AP classes, and I hung with the smart kids. But I was a football player, um, and that was a very different uh, kind of, you know, um, social ecosystem. So I, I would say that I had some, I had some, you know, good friends um, and some special people. And but I was a bit of an anomaly. Um, uh, and um, I mean, was I, that hard? It sounds like uh, you. you you needed to get off to college. It was. But, yeah. It was hard. I, 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 um, I'm, I'm such a, like, you know, I'm a very tribal person, you know. I think, I, and I think that my family was so close, it always felt like, a, you know, a bit of a failure that I wasn't able to kind of replicate that uh-huh. uh, outside of, of, you know, the place that I grew up. Um, and, then, and then when I went to college, so I was, the, I was as far as I know, the first person uh, from my high school ever to be accepted to an Ivy League university, and I was the first in my family to go to college, and I went to Cornell, and and there, like, I feel like my whole world just kind of opened up, and I met the friends of my lifetime, the people that uh, I still interact with on a pretty much a daily basis, and and had a uh, really great experience, but I, I really did need to go away to uh, kind of figure out who I was and kind of come into my own. It seems like you'd be feeling some pressure then, uh, first first in the family to go to college and and the Ivy League thing. Uh, yeah. Did you know what you wanted to do in college? No. What, what? Uh, no. There is actually there's a good story there. So going to going to Cornell was a big deal in every way, um, including financially. Um, you know, fortunately, my dad had had gotten some uh, digital stock, and uh, that that uh, you know pretty much you know we ended up investing the majority of that into the Cornell experience. Um, my dad wanted me to do something, you know, practical, something that I could get out and make money doing. And, uh, the two of us kind of chose economics. Um, so a joint decision. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, I, I, I didn't really know. And, and, um, and it didn't, what was I going to do major in history or like, you know, um, and so, um, so I went to Cornell with the intent of being an economics major and, um, I had a fantastic time. And my first semester, I think I got a 1.6. <laughs> and then my second semester was a 1.4. So do tell, what were the distractions <clears throat> about? Well, uh, um, there was, um, you know, uh, Leah Eisen was a bit of a distraction. Oh. Um, uh, <laughs> no, I mean, I, I was playing football and having a good time. And, and you know, I feel like um, I, I uh, you know, I, I had, I had kind of cruised through, you know, high school. Like I really wasn't. That that you know hugely challenged, yeah. um, and when I got to Cornell, it was um, it was a big big difference, and uh, I I really you know I was not terribly well equipped I think, yeah. but a lot of it was just focus. I was just a bit of a knucklehead like. So how did you turn house. that around? I know, I mean if you went to HBS, we'll get to that, but uh, yeah. you must have done uh, some some soul searching. Yeah, at some so point. it was actually happened? an intervention. So this guy <laughs> Glenn Altshuler, who was the dean of the art school that I was a part of. At Cornell, um, he uh, invited me to his office to have a little chat, and um, he said, "You know, I noticed that uh, you're 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 failing, and uh, and you're particularly failing your major. Um, um, you know, you're you're a bright guy. What what's going on here?" And and I sort of said, "Well, I'm not sure. You know," he said, "You know, is economics something you're interested in?" And I said, um, "No," uh, and he said, "Ah." Um, he said, well, why are you an economics major? And I said, well, my dad and I kind of felt like this would be something that would, you know, allow me to generate some income after school, which is important. And he said, um, I'd like you to invite your father to join me for conversation on Thursday. And I'd like you to, you know, so my dad drove up, it's like five and a half hours, a big deal. Wow. And, um, we went to meet with Glenn Altshuler and, and, uh, Dean Altshuler said, uh, Mr. Triano, you know, um, uh, I think there's a place for Michael here at Cornell, but not as an economics major. And so your choices are, if you, if you are intent on him pursuing that, he can do it elsewhere, 
or he can stay here, but only if he decides what he wants to do and dedicates himself to that. And so, you know, we were, we were kind of leaving that meeting, and I remember vividly walking across the arts quad, and, you know, my dad saying, you know, you know, I, you're in a, you know, this, I don't know this world. I don't know how this works. Like, you know, was your dad angry or was he not at all sympathetic? No, or? not at all. I oh. think my, he was never I, like, I don't think my dad would have been really friendly about that. Yeah. This he, event, he, but that's, he wasn't, um, he was incredibly supportive. I think he, yeah. he felt, um, you know, I think he wanted to do more to help me than he could. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, as, as a father myself, I think it's very hard to acknowledge when you're, you know, you don't have anything you can do to help your kid. I mean, it's like, you know, it's a, a nightmare of any, of any parent. Mm-hmm. But, um, so he said, well, you got to figure out what you want to do. And, and I, I went, you know, back to my fraternity and I remember sitting on the grass and just sort of reflecting on what it was. And, and, uh, you know, that analysis, and I've told the story many times, but I didn't feel like I was, you know, I was creative, but I wasn't the best at that. I was never going to be a great artist. Um, and I was, I was very logical and very analytical, but I felt like I would never be a great engineer. It wouldn't be the best engineer. But it struck me that, that few people you know, as creative were as analytical. Mm-hmm. And few people who had my analytical skills had the same level of creativity. And so it struck me that there was something at the intersection of those two things that was really what, what, what was unique to me. Mm-hmm. And the only thing I could think of that was at the intersection of those two things was marketing. Uh, and specifically advertising, which I knew nothing about. And so I came back the next day and I said, I think I want to be in advertising. And, and the two of them were kind of like, looked at me like, okay. And so that's how I became an advertising major. Wow. That's really interesting. I, um, I, I haven't heard advertising described that way as the combination, the intersection of creativity and analytics, but uh, it's, it's right. You said you, you, know, you were worried about not being maybe the best at, at these other things. Is that, is that a, something that you think about uh, as you think about coming into venture capital? Um, yeah. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it is. My, uh, you know, my goal is never to get to the minimum threshold. I mean, I want to be... Um, the best. It's funny, you know, I, I was at, a, uh, at this um, competition. Um, I was a judge at this President's Innovation Challenge at Harvard, I mentioned, and I brought my son, Max. And, um, you know, we were walking around a little bit, and, um, you know, what I, one of the things I told him, he's an extraordinary kid, and, and, and you know, I, in some sense, I was, I was a, you know, unusual in the town that I grew up in as well, so I relate to certain aspects of what he's dealing with. And one of the things I said to him was, I remember the feeling of coming here, having having been you know seen as extraordinary my whole life, and being suddenly ordinary, yeah. maybe below average, and what that feeling was like, you know, and and it's not a feeling that I aspire to. So yeah, I want if I'm going to do this or whatever, like I want to be the best. Okay, so you you I don't know what it's like to concentrate in advertising at Cornell, but I I take it that. You came out thinking I'm going to go into advertising. And yeah, I, I loved it. I took to it like a duck to water. It was the, it was the perfect thing for me. It was communication and um, um, which I had always been a writer and and um, always been a, you know very comfortable speaking in public. And it was really um, you know I think of all the things, so much in my life that I've been fortunate to, to to happen. But figuring out what I wanted to do and being right. At whatever I was, you know, 18, it was like such a blessing. Like yeah. I, I really, um, it was, it's just huge. And I, and I say to people all the time, sometimes the hardest thing is just to figure out what you want. And, and I had the, I was blessed to know what I wanted right out of the gate and to have been right. You know, um, so I, that, sa- that I sailed dean- through Cornell, made the dean's list and, and eventually went to New York. So that dean uh, really was onto something when he when he called you into the office. Had a that huge was, uh, impact on my life, yeah. uh, and we've kept in touch too. A great a great uh, human being, a great person. So I, I want to talk a little bit about the writing because I've always been amazed at, at your writing skill, and I'm just wondering, like, when did you know you were a good writer, and how do you think you got there? Uh, you know, it's, I have um, I have poems that I wrote when I was um, you know six seven years old. Uh, I don't know what it was. I think that. Um, it comes down to, um, you know, both of my parents were, were working at that time, and, and I, I had the sense that there was something out there. And so for me, like reading and television, and I was a voracious consumer of, of media. Um, 
And some of that was the written word. Some of that was like I was like a Star Trek fanatic. Okay, so you watched some TV. Then. Yeah, so for absolutely. those of us who were worried about our kids watching yeah. too much TV, you watched a little. Watched a of lot TV. of TV, and okay. and it really opened up my my world. You know, I mean, I, I from this little ethnic suburb to the sense that there's this greater world, there are greater truths out there, and and I started to sort of wrestle with that and process it, and I found that um, you know writing was a way to initially kind of. Um, connect with people, and I, I, I'm someone who craves that connection. Um, and then later on um, in high school, I had a, a, a teacher, his name was Albert Percano, I never forget this, and he was the first person to tell me my writing stunk. Um, what age was that? I was a sophomore in high school, okay. so... Um, <laughs> That's a wake-up call. Yeah, and, and great, I was right? like, wait a minute, I, what, are you, what are you talking about? My, everyone says, like, I write beautifully, and he's like, you write good prose, but your writing stinks because it's not orderly. Um, and he sort of had this discipline around deciding what you want to say and saying that in the first paragraph and, and kind of gave me a structure that, you know, I, I still use every day in the way that I write. And it, it has to do with, with you know, you know, the way you order your thoughts, making a statement. Um, you know, I still have that ability to write the way I talk, write in a very conversational way. Uh, and I think that served me well. But, but the structure that I got from, from Mr. Picano, you know, that really, I think, helped me go to the next level. And, and I, I, again, it's something I've used in every job, and it's something I, I really enjoy doing as a way both of sharing with others and as a way of organizing my own thoughts. Yeah, it's it's interesting when you, uh, as you talk through this, I'm thinking he gave you some of that analytical structure you needed, but you had the creativity always. And, uh, and yeah, I, I think it is it is it is a um, you know writing is a craft. I think it's something that you can't have a talent for it as with any communication, but but you can you really develop a long way. I think if you're disciplined about um, you know initially about structure, I think people way underemphasize the importance of structure, structured thinking, and and the way you write paragraphs and that stuff. But then, you know, beyond that, you know, it's a craft. You know, use good verbs. Take out prepositional phrases that are unnecessary. Like all the strunk and white stuff, yeah. I think, really is important to being a good, a good writer. I'm just going to ask one more question about writing because I, I, I think it's a reflection of thinking in some ways. Although when you're writing, you're thinking a little bit differently. Uh, how much of what you want to convey do you feel like you have at the start? And how much do you just dive in and... and figure out while you're writing a piece and see where it goes? I would say I have 80% of, of it in my head. I rarely will start writing without a clear outline of that gets me from A to B. And so that will be like, what is the point? And I, so when I write, I usually write the headline first. Um, that's an advertising discipline, but it, it forces me to figure out what is the point of this? What do I want the reader to take away? And mm -hmm. I, I I think that's that's one of the things I picked up as a public communications major at Cornell is is this idea of a listener-based model of success where I'm always thinking in terms of what do I want the reader to walk away with? And that is the organizing point. And then I figure out, okay, you know, in the structure of the narrative, what are the three steps? What's the big idea that's going to get them from where they are to where I want them? And what are the steps to get there? And and it's only when I have that structure will I begin to write. And then along the way, maybe I'll add something. Maybe I'll, I will, uh, you know, stumble across an idea, and then I'll always go through it and eliminate anything that doesn't advance, um, you know, the narrative. So it's it's, uh, you know, as I talk about it, and all this stuff has become kind of unconscious for me, but I am very, you know, I'm structured in the way that I think about writing. Yeah, I always. Um I guess I always think of the best marketers as those who have the most empathy for their audience, that just can think, what's it really like to have to deal with <laughs> the stuff I'm going to give them? Yeah. And uh, it sounds to me like, yeah, having that ad agency uh, background and then moving in. And technology, frankly, didn't have great marketing until maybe 20 years ago. And uh, and now it's better, but in you know you still see a lot of stuff out there that's not particularly easy for people to consume. Um, yeah, and no, I think I think you're onto something hugely important, which is, and I say I say this to people all the time too, that to be a great marketer is to be a student of human response, to follow that, and I think that's why all kinds of artists, communicators, like they crave the validation of human response. 
And so I do think that that you, you have to have that mindset. You have to be someone who is oriented to that and who wants the, the validation cookie. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, uh, one of my favorite books about marketing is actually Steve Martin's bio- biography, autobiography, The Born Standing Up, because he describes the process of creating a comedy routine in, in very much the same terms that I think of for creating a pitch deck which is all about trying something, observing the response of the audience, adjusting to that, and iteratively refining to get to a point where you get them to where you want to get them. And I think that is the discipline of marketing. You know, it really does come down to that much more than, than you know, some growth hacking bullshit or like, you know, yeah. more of the quantitative stuff that's in favor right now. And the, and the, the strong entrepreneurs um, use each pitch with, with VCs, I think, to refine what, what's working, what's Absolutely. not Absolutely. You never, never want to pitch the VC you want first, right? <laughs> um, you want to have a couple of, couple of attempts. And, and I think that there's a lot of, um, there's tremendous value in just that process of iterating uh, to refine your story until you get to something that's sort of road-hardened. Mm-hmm. and uh, that you know is effective in moving people from where they are to where you want them to be. All right, so let's go back. You, you graduate, you go to New York, and you're an ad guy. It was hard to find that first job. The backstory is I wanted to work in Boston. Um, always hated New York. And um, there were 28 agencies that I had heard of in Boston, and I wrote up my thing, and I took my <laughs> Ivy League credentials, and I, I, I got 28 no's. Actually, I got 27 no's and one guy who agreed to meet with me, and I met with him. Um, and then, a guy, was a, then it was a quick no. Um, and, it was, and, and then he said no. <laughs> my dad had said, um, you know, my dad ha- held marketing people in, in great, great disdain <laughs> as a sales guy. And uh, sure. he said, you know, if you're going to be a marketing guy, why don't you learn how to sell, get a sales job. And so I took a sales job selling kitchen knives. Um, <laughs> And really learned how to how to do that, and I'll tell you, it was hugely valuable to me. Where were you selling them? Is this like I, in a- Rhode Island? So my parents were living in Cumberland at that time, uh-huh. and and I was living in the basement, and I was selling kitchen knives door to door. It was a tough. I didn't even know that happened. Yeah. So you go, you just knock on the door and pull well, out you the you you get appointments, you- referrals. Oh, okay. So and people- you show up, and you uh, you sit down, and you lay out your wares, and you explain to them why huh. the knives they have suck, and why, did you uh, sell many knives? I did. I was the I was the regional salesperson of the quarter by my second quarter. You know, the best advice, or some of the best advice I got from my dad was about going into sales too, which was really not a natural path for me. And it does teach you a whole lot about uh, whatever business you want to go into. So important. If you go and sell something, because that's really where the rubber meets the road. So important. It's my biggest critique of, you know, kind of MBA programs is they all suck at teaching how to how to sell. Yeah. And at the end of the day, you know, my nothing happens in business till somebody buys something from somebody. <laughs> right. It's all bullshit, you yeah. know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, until somebody says yes and writes a check. Okay. So you you start out selling knives. Yeah. So is that out of college, first thing. That was it. That was. Cornell guy comes back. He's selling yeah. knives. And what? What? Humbling. I mean, and then what? <clears throat> so, I I was miserable, and um, one night <laughs> at uh, it was like you know eleven o'clock at night. I just was like, I got to get out of here. And um, I sort of packed up my shit and, and just ended up driving down to New York. And I, along the way, I stopped at a pay phone and I called um, some friends of mine, fraternity brothers, a guy named Paul Millars, and I, he lived in uh, lower Manhattan. And I said, I'm coming down. Can I crash at your place for a while? And he's like, yeah, sure. So I went down there and um, I called another guy, um, a guy named Fran Murray, who ran a restaurant down there. His family owned a bunch of properties, and one of them was called Flutie's down on the seaport. And I said, could I get a, you know, a, a, a bouncer job or a bartending job? And he said, sure. This was Doug Flutie's. Uh, Doug no. Flutie was the, yeah. Uh, yeah, it was his, named after him. Right, those are the days. Yeah. And uh, so I did that, and I, I did, ended up doing that. It took about four and a half, five months to find that first advertising job. Wow. I, I think it's a great lesson for everybody, though, is that at some point you got to go just try to do whatever you got to go do. You got to go do it. Figure it out. Yeah, that was a that was also so you, an important life lesson. Yeah. So you were account manager. So tell me more about that. Yeah. yeah so my first job was actually uh, it was from a guy who had played football at Cornell, um, and uh, he gave me my first opportunity named John Tracosis, um, and was just wonderful to me. He really taught me the business, taught me how to think strategically. Um, he put me under a, a, a guy named Andy Brief, who was also a great account guy and. Um, who, you know, really went out of his way to help me understand what was happening. And my first account was ABC Sports. 
Um, uh, it was fun. Good place yeah. to start. So what does a good account guy need to do or a gal? Like well, you need to understand what are the business objectives of the customer. And um, I mean, at, at the account coordinator, which is the entry level, it's really a lot of administration. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things I counsel young people to do is, is like, figure out what job you want to do, figure out who does that job. And when you meet with that person, say, I'm going to work my ass off to make you look good. <laughs> because I, I feel like, particularly in advertising, people come in and, like, they say, well, I have good ideas. And I, I don't give a shit about your ideas. Your ideas are all crap. Um, what, what I want is, like, you're going to come in and work your ass off, learn the business, make me look good, you know. <laughs> and that's really what I did um, is I, I would, you know, we did these weekly newspaper ads. And so they, you had to open the job. You had to... Um, you know, they were college football, so you had to get a picture of, like, Rodney Pete. And the only people that had pictures of Rodney Pete were local photographers at USC. And you got to find those guys. And over time, you build a network. So it was really the logistics of creating a weekly, you know, advertising schedule and a lot of administration. And the reason that I think these guys, John and Andy, had such an impact on me is, is they would always take the time to explain why. So I had this, like, shit work, and I, I was happy to do it because it was – it was, you know, the sort of quid pro quo. Yeah. But I could always go to Andy and say, hey, why are we doing this? Or what is this? And, and they would always sort of explain to me, all right, so we got to bring this guy in. And he thinks this guy's an asshole. And, like, you know, it was like they always sort of helped me understand, uh, created a context for my work. Yeah. And that's something I've, I've really tried to do for all the people that have worked for me. Take the extra time to Yeah, to, to say why. Something. Explain yeah. why. Okay, so you're at the agency. You're doing account management. Then what? What next? So I, 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 you know, had a great experience at uh, this agency. It was called Lois GGK and worked on some cool accounts. But I, I felt like I needed a credential. Like, again, I wanted to be at the top of the food chain. And uh, one day I got an offer from uh, McCann Erickson, which is a sort of legendary yeah, agency sure. and, you know, uh, Coca-Cola and, like, you know, General Motors. And I went over there to be an account guy and, um, and just had, a, a, you know, again, a wonderful experience with a really great, incredible group of people uh, who, um, you know, showed me what it meant to build a global brand. And, and really the next, you know, I, I would say the thinking was equivalent. Like the work we did for Jiffy Lube was another account I worked on at, at Lois GGK. I would say in terms of the quality of the thinking and the execution was as good as anything at McCann. But the logistics of a massive, you know, you know, $100 million media buy and the way you, you create different geographies, all that really came from my experience at McCann Erickson. So I've asked you this, so I know the answer, but um, uh, I think one of your favorite things to do is to get to the bottom of, of brand development, brand um, positioning, and so on. I, it sounds like you learned a lot in those days about how those brands define themselves, thought about themselves, but maybe it wasn't as much brand creation as you're doing now or as you have done. Sure. Right? So what's the, I guess what... I'd love to hear a little bit more about what you like about that process and what, what, why you're so good at it. Like, what is it that you where, do you, where do you start when you're starting to think about that? And how do you get to, uh, you know, how do you get to these uh, distilled brand positionings that are so helpful, I think? What I find fascinating about it is that um, it starts off as a very intellectual thing and it ends up being a very emotional thing. So for someone who's listening, talk a little bit about what, you know, what kinds of things. All right, they so I'll, I'll give you an example. From, from you, did, you did this process with yeah, us. So yeah. you know, if you don't have, you know, an army of people, a huge budget, what do you? Where do you start? I mean, do you still go out and try to identify a dozen, two dozen? Well, you know, uh, customers so, and uh, like, or what do you do? You yeah, start with the hypothesis so, uh, so, so, and test it off. So my my third day at Actifio, um, we had a um, there was a customer council. Uh, that was coming in. And so it was David Chang, you know, our head of product and uh, some other folks. There was a couple of people on my team, but I was like new and they kind of didn't know what the hell I was. Like Ash kind of brought me in and they were like, who is this guy? You know? <laughs> um, and uh, so I sit in the meeting with these customers and they're talking about the, you know, flux capacitor and like, you know, I probably understood about 30% of it. And then we sort of get to the end of the meeting and I said, well, let me ask a question, guys. Um, you know, the first time you used Actifio, how did it make you feel? And it was like a record scratch. Like, my team kind of looked at me, <laughs> like, um, and, and they were like, and there was silence. And so, you know, I was just quiet because that puts pressure on the other guy to talk. And then one of the people eventually volunteered um, that, um, 
that it had changed his life because he used to carry around a beeper and he would be terrified uh, that the beeper would go off and he would miss an SLA. Another guy then said, <laughs> I kept um, ramen noodles in my desk for three years because, um, because you know, back in whatever it was, 2009, um, we had a database go down and I was in the office, could not leave the building from Thursday to Sunday <laughs> to recover from that. And so I've kept these ramen noodles in my desk for that time period. Um, and I got rid of them uh, now that I have Actifio. And another guy said, the first time I recovered a 22 terabyte Oracle database on Actifio, it took a minute and it was, it was like the first time I kissed a girl. <laughs> <clears throat> I swear to God, that's what he said. Okay, so... So you're okay. like, okay, I can work with this. Boom. Okay, so, so that idea that at the end of the day, the emotional value at the core of, you know, data virtualization platform is freedom. Yeah. It's freedom liberating you from the tyranny of a system you know is going to fuck up and that's going to be your fault. And like, so that idea, once you have that, freedom is what it is. And do you think there are those moments with every technology? Yes. Okay. There, so there, it, every technology that needs a marketing guy is going to need, is going to have Because those. that means, that means it matters to enough people to justify the expense of marketing. Yeah. You know, and, and this is another McCann thing is like one of the, one of the interesting things. So McCann was very much powered so, by account people. Um, and, and you used to hear creative people say, oh, I don't want to do the ad for this, this fucking thing. Like, it's stupid. Preparation H or whatever. You know, we used to joke, there's an ointment for every orifice. And, and, and they're all McCann clients, you know. And, and you'd have experienced, um, you know, create, I heard a creative person dressed down, a, a senior creative person dressed down a junior creative person saying, um, you know, enough people buy this thing that's such that they have $25 million to spend on fucking television yeah. and you're telling me nobody cares about it? Why do they care about it? Yeah. That's your job. Go figure it out. Yeah. And, and it's like, and I totally, uh, yes, that's right. So if, if there's enough people that care about it to justify the expense of marketing, you have to figure out why. And that's and the so job. It sounds like you just had to ask people, how did you feel? Is it really that easy? That's though? a big like, part of it, yeah. Yeah. Well, wow. you're, you don't get a, and that, again, there is still the need for to, synthesis. You have to pause. You yeah. have to let the other side. You have side. to step back and you have to, you know, again, you have to find those patterns in the dots to try to get down to something compelling. And then on the other side, so it's sort of like a bow tie, you know, you, it's sort of big and then you zoom in. And then you have to take that idea. And you have to shepherd it through all the b no noise and bullshit of like of all the things that are competing with that in the way that you tell the story externally. So I would say, you know, the magic of that moment, which is what everybody focuses on, people ignore all the upfront work to, to build the data set to, to synthesize. And then the other thing I think people underappreciate is the work required to deliver a consistent voice at every point of contact with the marketplace. The communications discipline required to get every sales guy to tell the story the same way, to get your own people to like hit on the same set of ideas. Like if you're not sick of the same handful of sentences, like three years into your brand, like you're just not doing it right. Yeah. And having the resolve to maintain that, sustain it over time, you know, uh, you know, when you're sick to death of your brand, other people are just hearing it for the first time. And so you have to maintain that. And that, that I think, is the other place people go wrong. Yeah. So I have to ask you about marketing and venture capital. Um, we historically have not done much, I would say, any uh, until we started to connect with you. And and yet we have admired and, and uh, observed um, a lot of successful people in venture capital doing a fair amount of marketing um, and marketing and, and programs that lend themselves to marketing, I guess, um, which are, are valid. How do you think about um, marketing and venture capital? It's an industry that's changed a lot. If you look over the arc of it, you know, um, as you've said to me, you know, we're, you know, we're giving away money here. You know, we don't, we don't have a problem, you know, drawing people in. And I think for, for decades that was true, um, that um, at the end of the day, your job is to, you know, this is obviously a gross oversimplification, um, but, but you're, you're giving away money, and so it shouldn't be that hard to bring people to the table to come and ask for it. I, I think what's happened in the last, you know, decade or two is there's been this shift in power um, where, you know, one of the things that we say is that our customer is the entrepreneur. And I think for a long time, the customer, quote unquote, was the limited partner. It was the investor. So I think you have this sh shift in sensibility to need, you know, to, to want to attract entrepreneurs. Uh, there's a sense that the, 
the returns in the capital class as a whole are concentrated in the best deals. And so, you know, you have a bunch of firms that are looking to attract the best deals, the best entrepreneurs. And, and so, so I think that this idea that, that there is, you know, the role of emotion as an entrepreneur making that decision, it's, it cannot be, you know, overstated. Like, I, it's not, it's, it's very rarely is it, well, these guys gave me a pre of 22, and those guys gave me a pre of 24, so I'm going to go with the 24 guys, right? I mean, once you take money from someone, there's strings attached to that, right? <laughs> yeah. And you got to work with them. And so the emotional value prop around what is an emotional decision for an entrepreneur to go into business with an investor, it's, it's huge, there's been this sort of the content marketing revolution, and and I think you had a, an early VC bloggers. You know, we were talking about Fred Wilson at lunch, who started to build a brand around their expertise and around their approach. And I feel like I know Fred. I've actually never met Fred other than to shake his hand and say hello. He yeah. has no idea who I am, but I feel like I know him. Right. You know, same with Brad Feld, same with Jerry Colonna. And why is that? It's because they have a body of work where they've been sharing with me for you know a decade. You know, there are ups and downs, and you, you kind of develop a relationship um, at arm's length with these people. And I think, so that's very important at the individual level that I think you you start to, you know, people who are interested in startups and VC get a sense of who you are and what you're about as an individual. Um, but I also think that firms have, have, you know, points of view and personalities. And I think that the ability to distill, okay, what is the essence of what makes this firm unique into something you know cogent and clear, and then to deliver that to the marketplace in a way that's that's you know creates some distinction from the peer group, I think is an increasingly a driver of success. So Andreessen Horowitz uh, you know was an investor in Actifio, and Chris Dixon is a VC over there. And one of the things he said that I thought was fascinating was that people think VC is all about like stock picking, and that's the driver of success. But but he said eighty percent of VC success is deal flow and sourcing deals and having people want to work with you as a venture capitalist uh, is so important, such a huge driver of success, such a huge driver of returns over the long run. And I think more and more VCs understand that. And so you have seen kind of a renaissance in, in the marketing of VC firms. Mm -hmm. So you, you do your agency work and you decide to go to business school? That's not usually what happens yeah, uh, so, in agencies. So that, that, is, that is not what happened. That is not what happened oh. at all. So I, I, a friend of mine um, who was like this superstar like, you know, uh, guy, uh, his name is Brent Felito. Uh, he's a, a, a principal at William Blair. From Rhode Island? Uh, no, no. He's oh, okay. a Cornell, Cornell <laughs> buddy. Um, he was always like this like super overachiever, you know. Uh, an amazing, just an amazing person, very committed to excellence in every aspect of his life. Um, and um, he wanted to go to HBS. And we were living together in New York at the time. And he asked me for, you know, help writing his application. <laughs> of course. Um, and so we worked on it together. And, and I, I got a sense of, okay, here's the process. And, and whatever. And he got in. And of course he got in because he's Brent Felito, you know. <laughs> So how much how much credit do you take for I, for him no, uh, getting in? Do you, I, a little? It was um, it was uh, sounds like um, it was the truth well told, Bob. <laughs> truth well told. Excellent. Well, we're hoping for some of that magic uh, <laughs> to rub off. So when I, I I contemplated business school, but I wasn't serious about it. And um, the one thing I knew about HBS, well, I knew two things about HBS. One was I knew what the questions were, and I knew I. I could formulate my responses because I had naturally thought about yeah. what I would so say. So you kind of went there because it was felt like an essay writing contest. Thing, you were like, oh the my second goodness, thing, I can do this. No GMAT. Oh. So I didn't want to take the GMAT. Right. That's right, isn't it? So, so it was just really a writing thing. Oh, perfect. So I, I wrote up my thing and I, I, um, I wrote the shit out of it. And <laughs> Told my story. What did you write about? Um, you know, I wrote Do you remember about which uh, one you think knocked them over. Yeah, um, I think the experience of um, you know some of what we've talked about today, my failure at Cornell, uh -huh. and what it took to come no, back from that. There's nothing like a good failure. Uh, nothing in a, like in a good a failure. Application. That yeah. was good. And then um, my experience at um, you know, I think I think part of it is you know, there's all kinds of you know, if you went to Bain, it's really hard to get into HBS. But I was like a New York ad guy. 
Right. And there weren't that many people from that background. So I think they, there was the sense that I could add value to the classroom. Yeah. Um, and then the third thing was how I wanted to use it. And, and I, I, it's funny, like I remember this very vividly, but I, I said at that time, you know, I, I have this talent for simplifying the complex. And I feel like we're in an age where that's going to be increasingly important as new technologies yeah. come onto the scene. And that's really what I want to spend my career doing. I, I really literally said this, that, that to make the complicated simple and package it in a way that is compelling is something I have a real talent for, and that's what I want to do. And so I think that was, that was the sort of third thing. So how was HBS different than Cornell? Did you... Um, did uh, you... 100% different. Yeah. 100% different. I mean, I think, well, Cornell, you know, sort of opened me up to a national you know, scale of things. And HBS did it on a global basis, right? You know, I, I remember another quick story. Um, there was a, uh, a, a, a Colombian guy there, this guy, um, Julian Irigori, Julian. And um, I, I remember standing at a party and he was smoking a cigarette, which he always did. <laughs> and uh, this guy came up to him and, and he did said... he smoke with an accent? Uh, he did, he smoked with an accent. You can only smoke with an accent when you're from <laughs> Colombia. <laughs> And uh, this guy said, um, well, where are you from? And, and he said, I'm from Colombia. And the kid said, oh, uh, you must be a drug dealer. <laughs> and Julian said, oh, where are you from? And he said, I'm from America. And he said, well, you must be a drug addict. <laughs> and it was the coolest thing. Yeah. It was still like, and then he yeah. took a puff on the cigarette. It was like, but, I, but it was so much of that kind of sensibility. Yeah. So I think the global I mean, thing is, was is one. Is HBS the kind of rough and tumble place that some people think it is? I mean, like <clears> this, <throat> this, you must be a drug dealer. Like, is it rough and tumble? Yeah, I, it is. There's definitely some it, people it, that... It's not for fragile egos. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, you, 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 it is, it's humbling. Is it, is um, it a good kind of uh, yeah. experience? It's wonderful. Know, the, whatever, it doesn't it's, kill it's you. It's wonderful. Uh, builds up your ego I kind think of thing? It's, I think it's... <laughs> well, you know, I think what it is is... And I think this is less true than it was, but... You know, the first year at HBS, you know, you're, you're going to get thrown out of there. Like, there's too much work to do. I mean, you're doing six cases a night. It takes a couple hours to do a case. Do the math, you yeah. know? So you got to figure out how you can finesse uh, well, a bunch of work. Some of, that, some of it is that, but it's also you need relationships. You need a study group. You need a guy who understands who worked in a factory. You need a guy who from finance. Like, and, and they all need a guy from marketing, you know? Yeah. Um, and so... So the relationships and the ability to figure out what's important and to get to the point, all those skills are developed in the crucible of the first year. And then you spend your second year kind of marinating in all the goodness of the latest thinking. And so, you know, I, I just had an incredible experience there. And on top of all that, you know, once you get through that, you know, you kind of feel like, okay. I'm ready. I, I can, well, yeah. what? What are you going to do? You know? Um, <laughs> You yeah. know, um, I, I can probably get through it. And what did you decide? What did you want to do going into HBS? And what did you do, end up doing? Well, I felt like I wanted to create uh, some kind of an agency um, going into HBS. When I got out, I had taken a job at Monitor Company. Oh, right. These are your <coughs> consulting uh, Yes. I've been a summer consultant there. And they when they pick you up, they pay for the second year, which is nice. Um, now, did you have to go back there? To um, so, so the way it – what happened was – there was a professor there named John Quelch, who I think actually is now the dean of the London School of Economics. But John and I had to struck up a relationship, and John was on the board of WPP Group. And he was talking to Martin Sorrell about some something related to me, and, and he said Martin wanted to meet me. Martin's the CEO of He's WPP. the founder and CEO of WPP Group, okay. yeah. Um, so he's a big wig. He's a big deal. You're ready for him now because you're an HBS deal. grad, and you're like, okay, bring yeah. him on. So um, I went down to New York, and I met with Martin, and he said, I want you to come work for me. Um, and so that's that's how I ended up having to give the money back to monitor. I was going to say that that's was sucked. A, that's yeah. too bad you couldn't get Martin to pick up the tab. Yeah, no, that. that wasn't going to happen. So you went back to New York. So I went back to New York this time as a. I was the director of special projects. I think was the title we chose. Okay. But he, w I was a troubleshooter. He would send me into situations and. Oh, you worked directly for him. Yeah, I worked for him. Wow, I didn't know that. That's yeah. that must have been great. It was uh, cool. Yeah. It was cool. And did you travel? I mean, were you yeah. just... Yeah, so... Yeah, all over. And one of those assignments was inside Ogilvy, and it was fixing a project that was broken for American Express called ExpressNet. And I came back to Martin, and I said, I think this digital stuff is really cool. And he said, all right, <laughs> we'll stay there and do something with it. We should keep an eye on this internet thing. Um, might, I think it's going to be big. What year What years were you there? 1994. Oh, that was the That, that was, was it. Moment. That was the Netscape year, yeah. 
Could not have been better timing. Yeah. And so I was the founding CEO of Ogilvy Interactive. That's where that came from. Is, yeah. is I created Ogilvy, I created an interactive division of what at the time was the fifth largest agency network in the world. Huh. And uh, that that was how that came about. So that was that your first real entrepreneurial. Uh, it was leadership position. It, it was uh, it was my first CEO job, um, and it was also the first time I realized I'd created something really valuable that I, I owned zero percent of. <laughs> So that was, so I well, must have been out that day at HPS. That yeah. that's not that's not a good thing. Yeah. Um. And so I left there to start my first company, which was called Brandscape, and that was an agency. Okay. Yeah. And where was Brandscape located? Fulton Street, uh, downtown, across the street from Flutie's, ironically, but it was right in the in the South Street Seaport. And you guys were going to do what? Strategic, you know, we were, we were building websites and consulting on brand development. And okay. we, we ended up with a whole bunch of Unilever brands, Wishbone and Gorton's. And, oh, those um, are big brands yeah, for a new yeah, agency? Yeah, yeah. How'd you win those? Uh, my partner, Tom Kniff, um, had done some work on Ragu. Um, and so that was really the first of the big brands. And um, we, we did some really cool work. I think, I think th- these were still early days of the Internet. And as I look back on some of the stuff that we did, it really brought a brand sensibility to the web that had not existed before us. So like, you know, we went to Gorton's and, um, you know, at the, at the time this was like, you know, the IBM webpage was like Lou Gerstner, you know, in, a, in text. And so w- we went to Gorton's and we said, our whole pitch was, you know, that, that um, we started off and we said, we want you to put fish recipes on the web. And they were like, um, you know we sell frozen fish, right. right? We want people that don't have any yeah. recipes. And we were like, we were like, what is the Gorton's Fisherman? The Gorton's Fisherman is an emblem of expertise. It says we know fish. Right. We live here. We live on the ocean. We get it. And so what you have to do to leverage digital is you have to make that expertise real. And we want to capture all this information about fish recipes and whatever. And we want to make your expertise manifest not only in the form of this iconic image, but in the form of substantive content and information. Yeah. And they loved it. I um, love that story because I think so often we get fixated, uh, you know, in companies on the product and, you know, the features and the, and we don't think about how do we look like an expert in an area that the customer just cares about and right. build that trust so that they say, oh, of course we'd consider a product from the Gordon's Fisherman. I mean... You could have sold knives, probably. Yeah, there you uh, go. <laughs> so, so it was that really that approach, and um, that was a, a good group of people, and um, it kind of got us got us going. Okay, um, and uh, and so what happened there? Uh, you had some good <coughs> clients. Yeah, we, uh, you know, we did d- you reach the two thousand one implosion? So we got or bought what? before then. Okay, that's good. Um, so we had Hopefully sold. Not too um, soon, we but. had sold. Uh, um, an e-commerce project. So what was happening in the web is it was moving away from the sort of pictures and text into these more transactional environments that required back-end integration. And so, um, you know, um, I actually sold the first uh, e-commerce system to um, EMC. So EMC's first place where they were going to sell product um, uh, on on the web um, was a division so was of theirs your called first move into B two B. Really, uh, in, in 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 that part of my yeah. life, yes. Okay, I'd done some of that at McCann, and I had done different um, projects, but this was really uh, a, a move to to do that to create this transactional system. Hmm. And so we 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 you know we kind of sold it out our ass to be honest with you. We we really didn't the back end integration. We 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 had no business doing that. So we <laughs> needed a subcontractor. Yeah. And so I found a systems integrator in Boston called Primex, and um, that project was successful. And the CEO invited me to dinner and said, "Look, you know, we have this capability, and we 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 can't sell it." You can sell it, and you have no capability. <laughs> we should, um, we, let, get, we should together. get together. Yeah, peanut um, butter and chocolate. Yeah, and, and so you guys merged. Yeah, and uh, was that a good decision? It was. Um, I, I had to um, kind of. Uh, it was another one of these sort of organ transplant rejections, a little bit like where they they weren't quite sure, like a marketing guy, you know. But so it took about six months for me to sort of demonstrate that we could. We had a model that would work, and uh, after that, they made me the president uh, of Primex, and that was a public company, and. And we did great until 2000, May of 2001. And was most of Primex's business with 
startups or no, not, just, not just most. Everybody just stopped spending. Not they, most. Yeah, they stopped believing in the. Yeah, I remember. I remember the day the where the general manager of the, our North American business came in and he said, "Pitney Bowes just canceled their their project." And I'm like, "What do you mean? They, we have a signed contract?" And they were like, "They said they didn't care." And I was like, "Oh." <laughs> Um, Pitney Bowes, yeah. are we going to... Yeah. So, but that that day was like, you know, really the beginning of the end. Yeah. That's, um, I think it's a, it's funny. I joined venture capital, the industry, just ahead of the bust. And I think it was good to see the good and the and the tough days because, um, and I wish we could return to the good days, but Sobering. it's very unlikely to get back to that, that level of... of uh, Irrational exuberance. Yeah. It really was amazing. The The... You know, I think uh, almost anyone could get a job uh, back then um, doing um, digital work. But anyway, um, I guess what did you take away from that whole experience? I mean, starting a firm and and then merging it, and like, what was the big lesson that you took from that to to apply as you as you went ahead? Well, I think it was a couple of things. I think one is that um, um, I learned how to build the infrastructure to run a scaled organization. I mean, we were a public company, and you know, a services business is not that complicated to manage, but you got to have the systems and processes in place to do it at scale, uh, to limit surprises. And you know, we had this executive package that we implemented around the world, and I was really proud of that. It, we, we did some balanced scorecard analysis and like all these different ways to track like employee satisfaction and the recruiting function, and and we finally got it to a place where the machine was was running and. When you're at the top of an organization that's running in that way, it's such a thrill because you, you have, you know, you see the results, you know where you are. It's like the whole thing kind of becomes clear. Um, and so that experience, I think, shaped the way I thought about scaling a business. It really gave me the other part of, like, you know, building, a, starting a business is one thing, but it's, it's 100% different to scale a business, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think it gave me that expertise. And then the second thing is it taught me the shit can go bad fast. And when it does, you know, business has always been, um, you know, for me, as, as this is a common theme throughout my career, but it, part of it is, is the belonging aspect of it and the tribal aspect of it. And you feel this personal connection to people. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, a business exists because it generates a profit. And, and I think it was a bit of a wake-up call. I think I was, I was never the same after that. Um, because you know, I had I had I had recruited you know whatever hundreds of people into that organization, and and then I fired hundreds of people, and mm-hmm. and it really um, it was a tough time in my life. I think it really was a low point, um, and, and and changed me. Yeah. All right, so let's let's uh, shift gears a little bit. I, I know you know you had a great uh, run at MCube, and we've talked a little bit about Actifio, but I've worked with you for four years there, and I I know that story well, and I think, I think others probably have heard it. Let's talk about, um, you know, the decision to move over to the dark side, as you might like to, yeah. to hear, being a, uh, being a, a, a big Star Wars fan. Um, I guess I'm curious as to, you know, uh, how, what, what's sort of driven this decision? You know, what, what, uh, what's, what's, what are you excited about, or what are you, you know, what are you concerned about worried about i don't know yeah i mean i um well the story is that um, you know i had written this piece about um about uh andreessen horowitz's model and it got a lot of play and i've been approached by a few people and i i i went to you um to uh talk about um this thing and and you said well if you're thinking about venture <laughs> you know um let's we should need to let's have dinner tomorrow night you know um and um as I thought about it, um, it just struck me that that in some ways, I really do think of venture as in 2017 as being in many ways analogous to the agency life that's been half my career. So it's definitely different from an operator standpoint. And and um, the source of my anxiety, you know, is is all the ways that it is different from being an operator, which I've been for 25 years. But the the source of my belief in it is that it's really a lot like an agency, but with a dramatically better business model. <laughs> um, where, in the sense that, you know, I think you're 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 making a commitment to a group of companies, and you're out there and looking for new folks to add to the portfolio, and 
you know, so much of running an agency, you know, we used to joke that that running an agency is is 80% about getting clients and 20% about helping clients. And anybody who runs an agency knows that. If you're a principal, you're out looking for customers. Um, and I think venture is, is, you know, analogous. If anything, you're spending more time with the companies already, already in the portfolio. Yeah, I like, um, that, um, I like that framing because I don't know how we split our time between uh, finding and, and helping, but I like to think that we have when we started G20, tried to shift that time um, really back into helping. And, um, you know, I, another, I guess, Fred Wilson blog talked about the importance of appreciation, enthusiasm to support companies. I think the problem solving and the strategy is the third piece, which sometimes happens. And, and it's not uh, it's not often, uh, or it's not always the, the VC that is able to add a lot of value. But I think one of the things that I've always tried to do is understand our companies well enough that we can bring in the right people that can help them and uh, have the level of trust that's needed in order to um, to, to, to bring in and, and have those ha- have those points of view uh, well received and and one of the reasons we were so excited to be able to get you is because we've introduced you to all of our portfolio companies at different times and you've come right in and and I think um, helped from a strategic standpoint that can have you know in a way that can have the most impact I think a lot of folks are looking for help on um, on the operating side, but frankly, I don't think VCs can help that much on the operating side. I think you you really are limited there, and uh, and so I think of you as a as a very very compelling strategic thinker and w- someone that can uh, um, help, as you, as you said earlier, simplify what is what is often a very complex world for for CEOs and senior teams that are trying to make sense of. Where they fit on the map and where they, you know, where the puck's going to go and what they need to do to be in the path of progress of, of value creation. So I, I, I think you are naturally uh, inclined for this role, and uh, um, I'll just throw that out there. But uh, I think, um, you know, we were talking earlier about um, the mix of VCs being talented operators and maybe more strategic thinkers. <laughs> I don't know, put another way, not operating guys yeah, who sure. have maybe been investors their whole lives. And I, I used to think when I started uh, in venture that the operating experience was the most important thing. And I think like Fred Wilson, I used to give the advice of um, go work in a startup, go work for a big company, figure out, you know, because the big companies are the customers, figure out how the whole game is played, work in sales, get all that experience. And um but I think as I as I look at the the talents and the skills uh, around the board tables that that I sit, um, being able to help guide senior teams into strategies that are really going to position them for the greatest you know probability of of capturing value or creating value and and success is um, is probably the most important skill and helping with the identifying the right people to help make that happen as well whether they're advisors or executives and so on so. Um, I guess I just wanted to explain a little bit why I think you're going to be a, an outstanding uh, venture capitalist. And it's not because I don't think you're a great operator, but <laughs> it's just that your operating skills uh, are, I think, overshadowed by your ability to, to see, uh, you know, see, see simplicity uh, where you can and, uh, and down the road a little bit. Um, so tell me about, uh, you know, what kind of a venture capitalist you want to be, like, you know, what, what do you want to be known for? Because I know you want to be the best, and I, I, um, I think sometimes people have to define, define that, what that means uh, for themselves. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I, 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 I was thinking about that this weekend. <clears throat> you know, what is the sort of manifesto for my personal, like, you know, who do I want to be? And I, I think for me it comes down to, um, you know, there was a lot of kind things um, we, we I did this announcement last week, and so a lot of people said a lot of really nice things. But you know, one of the things that was said, I think it was actually C. A. Webb, who said uh, Mike is someone that you really want on your board, someone that can add value. And I think um, I really appreciate that comment. Um, but but um, that's sort of who I'd like to be. I'd like to be the guy that people want to have by their side. You know, when they're trying to figure some shit out, or when they, you know. To have a uh, a board member that actually adds value, um, which which happens, but it, but <laughs> you I, sound I, a little skeptical. I, I am skeptical. I think that um, look, you know, I mean, I I um, I do think I've had a lot of boards, and you know, in my lifetime, a lot of board level interaction. 
Um, I think Actifio had a particularly good board, but but there's always you know somebody on the board who asks you know board members have a gift for you know the irrelevant question. You know, <laughs> um, they, sp- they spend a lot of time kind of in the weeds of like some stupid thing that has really nothing to do with whatever problem you're trying to solve, and um, and and there's such conviction about those things and whatever, and that's part of the process and. But but okay, so I, I you think don't it, want to be that guy. It's such a time suck, yeah, no, and I I want to be the antithesis of that. Yeah, I want to be the guy who asks the smart, relevant question, and more than that, I want to be someone who can help answer it, uh, in service to, you know, the the clients in my portfolio. And I, I I choose that word very deliberately. I really do think of, you know, the the seven or eight companies in our portfolio as as clients in the agency sense of people that I want to find ways to serve and help. And I feel like if you do that, if you're if you're a board member who brings capital, but really is able to make a contribution, and you build a reputation as that, then over time, I think you can be the best. I think you can defined as the person uh, who attracts the best deals and the best entrepreneurs. Do you want to talk a little bit about um, um, what you hope G20 will become? Since you know we're going from a partnership of two to a partnership of three, and yeah. uh, it's a fifty percent increase. It Bob. is. It is, and it's a big. Uh, it's a big shift. It's a big change. Yeah, I mean, look. One of the things that I'm. I'm. Uh, you know, I think one of the things that turned me off to venture for a long time is, is again. I, I mean, no disrespect to anyone else, but there's a lot of dysfunction in a lot of VC firms, right? Um, these partnerships. There's a lot of money floating around. A lot of egos. Um, and there's just my experience has been there's there's a lot of kind of social dysfunction um, uh, in a lot of these organizations and and part of it for me in terms of coming here was you know we've worked together for five years I've known Bill for almost as long uh, we we know we like each other and and I relate to you guys and and um, and I, I really like that aspect of n- not only in the core partnership but also in the membership of the G20 like. Those events, whether it's the you know Oktoberfest or when we have dinners, like that's a group of people that I just really love spending time with, you know. And and there's no assholes in that group. Um, and, and of course, I'm going to say that because like, but but I really mean it. Like, yeah. I can't like name like honestly like oh that except that guy he's a dick. <laughs> um, it's just a great group of people, all of whom have a kind of similar sensibility and a passion for building businesses, and and so. Um, you know, I'll, I'll come back to where I started, which is that that for me, it's about belonging. It's about the relationships that transcend individual companies, individual projects, and and about the people you work with. And that's never been more important to me than it is now. And and that aspect of what G20 is and and will always be about, I think, at the core of it is is that it's about people. You know, it's a, it's people first, and that aspect of it, I think, is is what I'm most excited about. All right, we don't have that much more time, but let me ask you one last question. Um, and this is uh, from Gustav, who we work with now. Uh, he wanted to know where you get your inspiration for, you know, things that you do uh, for your uh, new blog uh, idea. You know, some of the writing that you do. And I know you do. Uh, I want to plug your your writing as a um, as a parent, which I know is is an important um, area. But I'm just kind of curious where you where you find inspiration. So, um, I'm a huge Bruce Springsteen fan. Okay, the boss. Huge, fellow New Jerseyite. Yeah, um, I know you read his yourself. biography. Right read it the day it came out. <laughs> inhaled it. Um, and one of the things that I love about Bruce is, is you know, when I talk to my kids about what makes him special versus like whoever, you know, Ariana Grande or whoever. Um, and and when explaining that to my children, I would say, you know, Bruce isn't an, an artist. And, and my daughter said, well, what does that mean? And I said, you know, an artist is someone that has the courage to share something intimate and personal. And a great artist is someone that shares things so intimate and personal that, ironically, they're actually universal. And so, you know, for me, like, I try to engage in the world and respond to it and be open to it and and try to, you know, connect dots and different ideas. And, um, and when I feel the spark of a notion or an observation or something interesting, I have the discipline to force myself to sit and write it down and to develop as an idea and then to share it with the world. And so, so I think a lot of it is that. I think the vast majority of people actually 
encounter things in their daily life, their internal life, or in their external life that are worth sharing with people. But they don't do two things. They lack the courage to share it uh, for some reason that has to do with how professional it is or some bullshit from the 20th century. Um, or they lack the discipline that required to convert that into something that people want to read. And so for me, it, it's less about the, you know, some magical like light bulb moment that I have that nobody else has and more about just sort of plugging into that sensibility of being open to those things when I encounter them and, and having, you know, at some level the courage, but also the craft to uh, create a content asset that, uh, that people will, you know, will, will think is worth sharing. That's what it is. I think one of the hard things is, is, is recognizing an emotion and then being able to act on it and not trying to put it in a box, right, and just and, and saying, oh, I'm going to use this. Artists do that. I think entrepreneurs do that well. Um, and maybe that's partly what the affinity you have for entrepreneurs is, is the same thing you have for artists, which is these are folks that are willing to act on their uh, instincts and be and and have the courage to put themselves out there. Absolutely, so. very analogous. It's it's the same. It's that same sensibility, particularly entrepreneurs who are, you know, intimately versed in something that's a personal issue, right? Yeah, something you're always looking for is someone who's really invested in whatever it is. <laughs> right. right, right. The best um, entrepreneurs, it's personal. Like, yeah, they're going to make. It's it not like out. they were trying to think of a company to start and they hit on. <laughs> right. They had five ideas and this one was the least bad. Right, right. 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 It's that they really want to figure this out for some reason. Um, and I do think that that is the same thing. It's an artist's courage uh, that, that is in all great entrepreneurs. Thanks so much for, for sharing all of, uh, all of your thoughts well, today. Well, thank you, Bob. It was very <laughs> fun being on the other side of the table. Indeed. This isn't, this isn't so hard. No, it's not hard. <laughs> How hard can it be? How hard can it be? I really enjoyed that conversation with Mike. I learned a, a lot about Mike as a person and, and some new things about his career, uh, including being a consultant. I'm pretty sure Mike makes fun of consultants now, but uh, now we know. And uh, I want to uh, promise everybody that Mike will be back in this seat uh, next week, and I want to thank our sponsors. Um, How Hard Can It Be is sponsored by G20 Ventures, early traction capital for East Coast enterprise tech startups, backed by the power and expertise of 20 of the Northeast's most accomplished entrepreneurs, G20 Ventures, people first. How Hard Can It Be is also sponsored by Actifio, the world's leading enterprise data as a service platform. Deliver your data just like your applications and infrastructure as a service available instantly anywhere. For hybrid cloud, faster DevOps, and better business resiliency, Actifio is radically simple. Thanks, and we'll see you next week.